Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Canal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. Hey, crazy birds. I hope you are doing well wherever it is that you're listening to this episode from. New month. Wow. (laughs) It's just been a crazy couple of months. As you guys probably have heard, the podcast is now just once a month. Still great quality podcast, just less frequent until the end of the year, until I complete the studies and get everything done, learning a lot. And I've definitely been working some of those content in in the episodes that's happening. So really excited to share more of that with you guys. And had a really great conversation with our guest today talking about plastic. One of my favorite topics to talk about, obviously, is plastic. How do we reduce plastic? How do we design better things? Try to reduce the use of virgin plastics. But yeah, so our guest today is the founder and the managing director of the Ocean Recovery Alliance. He was also awarded the coveted Prince Prize for Innovation Philanthropy from Prince Albert of Monaco for his work in this space. And he is also the originator and initiator of Rebound Plastic Exchange for the global trading of recycled plastic feedstock in a certified, verified manner. And during this episode, we took a deep dive on his sustainable journey, how it started, looking back all the way from being one of the first people to actually doing scientific research at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And we also talked about the importance of organizations and as well as consumers in the current plastic waste problem. And we also looked at some of the wonderful initiatives that the Ocean Recovery Alliance is currently having from the app, Global Alert, the app, you can download it on the App Store, as well as all the way through to the Plastic Disclosure Project. Now, crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Doug Woodring. Thank you, Mariska. Thanks for having me. You are most welcome. How did your sustainable journey actually start? Let's like start right from the beginning. Well, I grew up in California, pretty clean, nice place, outdoors a lot, a lot of camping and uh, water sports. I was a competitive swimmer, water polo player, windsurfer, all the things you might think of, you know, a bit like Australia. (laughs) Came to Asia when I was uh, right out of university. Was really kind of shocked that the level of air pollution, primarily at that stage, got interested through my exposure to the water. But also, when I had my first job in Japan, I worked there for two years out of university, worked for one of the biggest fishing companies in the world, trading seafood. And I didn't see necessarily bad things, but I certainly learned an incredible amount about how much we take out of the ocean as human beings. Uh, And I just could not imagine that this is sustainable. And that was, you know, a couple of decades ago. And now it's really continuing unabated in many, many ways. So I said at that time to myself, I hope to do something for the ocean and slow down this fishing trade in a more sustainable way. But then uh, plastic came along through my sports of open water swimming and outrigger canoe racing. When you are in dirtier water and you always kind of think about a shark and you come up right to a plastic bag right in your face, scares the daylights <laughs> out of you. <laughs> yeah. Even though it's just a plastic bag, uh, you think it's something else. But seeing a lot of this firsthand all the time when you're in the water made me uh, motivated to do something about it. And that's where it started, I guess. Exposure. (laughs) That's amazing. That is something that I find, you know, often sometimes when 
you really get to deal with something straight on, that's when you really see what implications are there and how is this actually affecting the environment and what is your part in this? And are you standing by and watching it just continue or are you actually stepping up and and doing something? And it sounds like you went with kind of the latter part, you know, doing something. Right. So I started this NGO Ocean Recovery Alliance about 12 years ago, was already working with an entrepreneur here on ocean wave energy before that. So I was involved in the ocean economics and commerce, I guess you could say, experimenting with technology for for renewable energy with waves. But plastic pollution was not a big issue, certainly in Asia. It was a big issue in the sense that it was everywhere, but it was not a big issue in terms of people's discussion. Mm. It was not in the corporate level. It was not in the, you know, even the NGO level. You've probably heard of changing baselines and when people grow up in an environment where it's already changed for the worse in this case, they just think that that's the norm and they don't really think that they could do much. They don't call anyone. They don't try to pick it up. They just think this is the way it is. And coming from California, I knew this is not meant to be the norm because I've seen it <laughs> in the clean context. Yeah. And so that's what got me going. We did a few big events and expedition to the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the North Pacific Gyre, did the first real science studies there for three weeks with Scripps Oceanography. And that got global press. It was almost like a moon landing. And it was really amazing. People wanted to see the material, the plastic, or they wanted to touch it like it was a moon rock. Uh, And they said, well, what's it look like? Where does it come from? And they said, well, just go to the beach, pick something up. It's the same thing. It just happens to be moved by the wind and the currents. And that that's what got us going. So that's obviously the foundation that you've started, Ocean Recovery Alliance. That was, like you've mentioned, was a couple of years ago. So that was before this whole trend and wave of people started actually realizing, oh my gosh, we've got a problem. And now we're starting to see more people doing that. But what was it like? You know, obviously... Going back in that time, you guys made this massive discovery. How was people reacting? Were they like, oh, we don't have a plastic waste problem? Like, what are you talking about? Business as usual. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was kind of the case. We weren't the ones who first found it, but we did the first real science on it. Uh, Before, it was mostly sailors. There's a big uh, sailing race, Hawaii to California, and that a lot of sailors see it then. It's not on the shipping route because the ships travel north-south a bit like the airplanes when they fly over the poles to save distance. But it is definitely not a big island like everyone sort of thinks. It's not a big mess of floating material that you could go scoop out. But it is over a million square miles in size. And we tested water samples for three and a half weeks. And every single sample we tested had a plastic in it, little pieces. But that's, it was more like uh, someone explained it like a fog. It's, it's like dust and fog. And of course you see big pieces. But the challenge is that a lot of people in those times and days said, oh, well, my company has nothing to do with the ocean. I don't live near the ocean. I don't go to the ocean. The ocean is not really part of my life. So... I don't care so much about that. took some time for people to realize that it's all coming from land. It all comes out of our rivers and streams. It all comes from the packaging and the products that we use. And in many, most cases, we need it. We need plastic for all these things. But the problem is that in its second life, it doesn't go away. You can't easily um, do things with it. It's so light. It's uh, many chemicals, many melting points, many colors. And that's what makes it so complicated. In fact, we think this problem is more complicated than climate change to solve. Doesn't mean it's bigger necessarily in terms of impact, but it is very complicated. And that's the challenge we're facing now. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, definitely. And just to kind of take a step back. So the, the gyre you're referring to, is that the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Yes, the North Pacific Gyre between Hawaii and California. 
yeah, we we had like a massive episode in the beginning, like kind of when we launched the the podcast, you know, really digging deep into what exactly it is. So any of our crazy birds going like, hang on, what is this? Like, you want more info? I'm going to link that up in our show notes as well. So you guys can go to that as well. But yeah, it is really fascinating to imagine like how much waste it is that we are creating. And Obviously, that kind of brings us in with like your focus. Obviously, it is a focus on plastic pollution. What was it that discovery that like drove this movement for you? Or what exactly would you say was that thing where you like, you know, okay, hang on, we are going to focus on plastic? It was definitely that expedition that I learned so much about the size of the problem and the again, the complexity of it and the real lack of awareness that people had, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, You throw something away, uh, you don't know where it goes. You don't know if it's gone to recycling or not. You don't know how it's going to get burned or dumped. When I started looking at a global, I I have a background in international relations and business. So I'm not an ecologist or a scientist. So my thinking is more about entrepreneuring solutions and dealing with governments and businesses, how, how do we create programs that are cross-border and global at one time and not just something for my creek and my river and that beach over there? How does everyone get on the same page and solve this? So that's what uh, we created. We were the first in the world to have a methodology for plastic footprinting, which is much like carbon footprinting, same kind of idea, water footprinting. But we were probably nine years too early for that. The, the world wasn't ready to digest it. There was no such thing as a circular economy then. It was cradle to cradle and great Bill McDonough. And that was his terminology. But it hadn't caught steam yet. And now that kind of term has caught steam. And people are thinking about their own footprint on the environment, whatever that is. And I think now we are not only digesting this idea, but we are literally digesting plastic. It's found everywhere. And do you think like the plastic packaging is more like of a consumer problem or is it actually more of a design problem? I'm very glad you asked that. I'd say that there's three legs of the stool that are responsible for stewardship of this overall issue. One is the governments and politics legislation. One is corporates and the things they make and design. The other is consumers. I would say that the corporates have about 85% of the responsibility and weight. Governments are not fast enough to move and there are too many lobby groups that make things hard to uh, pass. And then the consumers, I don't mean it in a bad way, but we're a bit, bit like sheep or lemmings. We have to simply follow and buy what's given to us. We're not designing it. So the design actually also should include the social habits and behaviors and ways that our waste management systems are designed. And that's where the governments do come in. But the corporates need to be able to pay for that. Right now, it's free reign. Make whatever you want. Sell whatever you want to any country. It might be recyclable in Australia and in California and in France, but it's probably not recyclable in 180 other countries. Not that it's technically not recyclable, but they don't have the capacity or the systems or the machinery to do that recycling or even the social system to capture it and grab it and clean it and process it to someone else who does have that. So the consumer, most consumers are not litter bugs, you know, some of them are maybe lazy, but they often can't find the the right place to put things. Many countries don't mean to be polluting, but they're not given the infrastructure. The government hasn't provided for these kind of things. And and the companies also don't want to pay any extra money. They always say, oh, if we put an extra tax or a fee on this to solve the problem, then we're going to lose jobs and people are going to have to pay more. And there's this ongoing guilt feeling. But at some point, we have to stand up like adults and address this one together. Exactly. And you've mentioned earlier, obviously, the cradle to cradle movement that was happening. And, you know, that's something that is genuinely something that I'm passionate about. And I feel that, 
as designers, as companies, it is kind of in our hands as well to make sure that there is a closed loop, that, you know, we don't design products that now has to be recycled. And, you know, recycling is just like fancy word for we are downgrading that product, something else. So, you know, it's not like a fascination thing where, you know, a fairy magically turns it into something better. It is actually downgrading. That is one of the things that I feel plays such a role in in people thinking, oh, you know, I'll recycle. It's okay. So like, what would you say the role of recycling actually play in reducing some of the waste? And how do we actually make like recycling better? I actually think recycling is uh, really the number one solution right now that we have as a globe. Unfortunately, it is not it's not very trusted. A lot of people think that it hasn't worked as well as it should. A lot of countries sort of hover at 35 to 45% recycling rates for plastic, but there's many countries who are under 10%. And globally, we, we are known to recycle less than 15% of all plastic made. But technically, it can all be recycled. The problem is the systems are not there. So if you're a company doing design, you at least you want to be thinking about a few things. Firstly, how can I design in recycled content into everything I'm making? It should not be with virgin material. There's plenty of ways you can bring in recycled content into almost anything now, food grade packaging or non-food grade. And that is uh, it's sexy. This is where there's going to be innovation and a lot of use. But if you're not buying the product, you as the, as the company with scale, then there's no demand for the people on the recovery side and the processing side. So, of course, we can alleviate some things. We can avoid them. We can reuse things. But that's not going to solve our big problem, which is all the plastic that we all need in our daily lives for so many different things. We need to be able to capture that. And standardization of packaging will be a big help if the brands would standardize the materials they use for different things so that the recyclers can aggregate that same stuff into the same batch. You you can't mix these batches of materials because they don't blend the right way and have the right properties and melting points. So standardization is big for design. And like I said, if you're a government or a company when you have a tender to buy a thousand chairs or twenty thousand tables for a school or a stadium, whatever it is, you should be specking in recycled content of at least ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent, whatever you can do to where the performance will be the same. So recycling without it, you know, we have landfill and we have burning, and burning can be incineration or waste of energy, but a lot of people obviously don't like that simple replacement going to back to glass, paper, metal really won't work because the economics and the environmental impact of going backwards studies have been shown to be about five times worse than staying where we are with plastic, mainly because of the weight and that therefore the transportation costs, but of course, growing more trees for wood and land use and water use and all of that mining, everything. Yeah, because I definitely think, you know, there's there's some elements that, you know, we need to think about, like you've mentioned the waste to energy as well. So obviously we are opening here in Perth a waste to energy facility in the next coming years. But the issue with that is, yes, it's great. Now we, you know, we kind of generate energy instead of using coal. But those products that we're burning was never meant to burn. So, you know, we need to rethink, like, are we designing actually stuff that is okay to burn? Or do we create new products that say, hey, this product can actually go in, you know, to get burned instead of plastic? Because obviously when you melt those plastics and I mean, I like, you know, creating artwork from these recycled materials, know how important it is. Like every single time I melt straws, I need to make sure that, you know, I'm covering my, you know, I've got like a filter, I'm wearing a mask, I've got eye protection. And that is because there's obviously toxins that's coming out. That's the same thing that's going to happen if we just, you know, burn everything. (laughs) You know, the challenge 
when you build a, that waste energy plant in Perth, obviously there's a lot of regulations and a lot of technology that can scrub out those toxins. And of course, it's not perfect, but it's much, 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 much better than it used to be even 10 or 20 years ago. But the real problem is that some estimates say that 40% of our world's waste is just burned in open pit, you know, front yard, backyard burning, 40%. And when plastic gets burned that way and it's in an uncontrolled environment, then you really do get the toxins. You really do get firsthand respiratory issue and you really do get carbon black, which is the soot, which is very bad for global warming. So we need to stop that kind of open pit burning. That's a, a big thing. And typically, you know, that links in with like another aspect of sustainability. We've got the social aspect because the people that kind of live in those catchment areas is not your like wealthy people that, you know, live in $5 million houses in Beverly Hills. No, they're actually more people that is not maybe even making minimum wages. So they are not typically the people that can afford to now pay for all of these respiratory issues that's now being caused by them living where they've been probably living for how many years and now all of a sudden they've got that on top of them. So it's such a big issue. We can probably talk about it for hours. We could. <laughs> yeah, but just like for our crazy birds, and I'm going to link that up in the show notes as well because the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has done some great like case studies and things as well where they you know talk about different companies doing things different and trying to make changes and I believe you you've also worked with the foundation as well can you tell us a bit about that well we've done studies with the UN and the, and the World Bank and uh, on plastic and also commitments we did a study a few years ago to study 580 global commitments on plastic pollution by governments or private companies or NGOs, foundations, because some people think those commitments don't always get fulfilled and uh, they're not always turning out to be what we expected. And in fact, that is what we determined. And we created a whole checklist and scorecard for commitments now to be made better so that you can follow up on them better, you can share them better, learn from another one, replicate better. From that, we've done a few different things. We have a now a great competition called Make the Case. And it's for university students to make the case for an existing plastic pollution program that's already running in their country or region, which we might not have heard of. And unfortunately, a lot of people create nice programs that do work, but it's only in their county or their town or their village. And the guy over the hill or the woman over the county doesn't even know that they did this. And then you come along and say, well, we've got to do something in, in our village. And there's so much uh, wasted effort and replication, which is not necessarily, you want to replicate the good things and not just repeat what others have done and you've got to go up the learning curve. So we've been having this competition in India for two years now. We just did a big Pan-Asian one. And this is great for getting university students thinking about which programs are already existing out there, which could scale, get bigger and be learned from and used in other places. Such a great thing, because sometimes if you just get that other perspective, you know, someone that's studying this that might know of like, oh, hang on, why don't we use cradle to cradle? Like, why don't we use the Hanover principles? You know, why don't we add something else? And then boom, you know, it just like kind of goes up. <laughs> so going back to, you know, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, they did a, a study and we did our own study a year and a half ago looking at the commitments that the big brands have made i mentioned them using recycled content in their packaging or products many big brands have commitments within five years to use 20 to 30 percent recycled content you know in their goods problem is they cannot find it they can't get their hands on it we think there's uh, over a six million ton shortfall in the next few years annually of recycled content wow. that they can't catch and use because the supply chains are so, um, well, actually non-existent, really, at that scale. And this is where the recycling, you asked again about mm. 
how does recycling fit in? We need all countries to have more capacities, more ability. They don't have to have giant machines to like Wally the movie. They don't have to be a multi-billion dollar machine. You just need what you really need is millions of little machines that can go into villages for grinding, shredding, cleaning, bailing, compressing. Then you can get it to the next, you know, market player who is the aggregator who will take all these pipes and put them together, make a bigger batch, and then he sells it into the, you know, the next chain. Then your supply chain starts working, but we don't have that really globally at all at the scale the brands need right now. Oh, wow. That's the, well, that's definitely something to look into. And I mean, shredding, like we've, we've talked previously on the podcast about the precious plastic movement. And, you know, that's something that I've been looking into actually getting some of the machinery just to be able to make stuff more and, you know, use the more variety. But then again, the issues of is this actually type one plastic? Is this this, you know, because a lot of the times it's like unknown, it's a mystery. So again, that that comes in and again, comes in with the design. And we should definitely make sure that, you know, whatever we design that it is like kind of adhering to these rules. So there's a lot, there's, <laughs> there's so much that we need to think about. So you guys have been very busy, obviously, you know, with Make the Case and all the other projects, but you guys have also developed like an app, which I would love for you to share more about. Right. So our app's called Global Alert because the alert is that there's plastic pollution everywhere. We're not looking for single locations of, of a candy bar bag, uh, you know, wrapper or a potato chip bag. This is for big areas of trash, which are near waterways. Because once it goes in the water, you lose it. So it really was meant for creeks and rivers and streams that feed to the ocean. If you think of creeks and rivers as arteries, think of the ocean as the heart and think of plastic as cholesterol. It's easier, easier to catch the cholesterol in the arteries before it gets to the heart. And so this is you know, not about recycling or prevention, but it, it gets communities engaged because anyone in the world can report where the hotspots are, either in the flowing water or near a river bank. Then what we need people to do is tell other stakeholders in that watershed, look, we've just done some reports. Photos, GPS points, here's where the hotspots are. We need to organize a cleanup on this riverbank. Or better yet, we need to think about a boom or a net or a catchment device in the river or the creek. doesn't have to block off the whole river for boats. doesn't have to stop fish. But very simple things can do a lot to take the surface material off the water. And when you do that, you get community engagement. You bring more awareness to the waters. You get pride for the outdoors and people are very happy when their creek or river becomes clean, even if it's not clear, but the garbage is off the top. Then you can have a dialogue with this community about next steps and how to do a bit more on your waste management. Of course, then when you catch it, you know it's coming from upstream. You can say, hmm, where did that come from? Whose is that? Why do they have it? Why do we have the same thing? Is it from a school, a, a, a playground, a factory, a, another town? Let's get them involved. So then you can start thinking about prevention, maybe recycling some of it, how to reuse it. But uh, so Global Alert, it's in Spanish and English. It's in both app stores. It was partly funded by the World Bank. So we built the app, but we don't have the connection to all the watersheds. So if someone's going to report, could be an eighth grade class that goes out twice a month and they, they take care of their one creek for two kilometers. That's already more information than most people have today. But, but they have to be responsible to, to tell someone in the community that they're doing it so that action can be taken, whether that's the local government, a Rotary Club, a NGO, a Riverkeeper, whoever it is, so that they, you put two and two together. And you use the data from the app to then manage that creek or river or coastline. Exactly. And I think that is so important and so vital because a lot of the times, you know, when people don't have the education behind certain elements, you know, they might not know that dumping stuff in the water stream is not okay. 
we can't really judge people based on their own experience. But once you kind of know better, you can actually do better. If we just get more communities to do that, we we might have way less waste going into our oceans. I don't know if you know of the broken windows theory, but that came out of the Bronx and Harlem in the 70s when there was a lot of crime. There was broken windows everywhere, graffiti on the trains. And a social scientist did a study and said, if we fix the windows, paint the trains, make it look nice, what will people do? Turns out people become proud of their environment and they caretake for it. And the dirty river is exactly the same thing. If you clean it and clean the surface of it, you then create a much stronger bond and and pride around keeping that water clean. If it's dirty all the time, people have no incentive to spend an extra thought about not, you know, throwing their stuff in the water. And we did this in Cambodia. Within one week, the local government created a fine for the local community. Now that the water was clean, they said, okay, now if you make it dirty, you're going to get fined. And you can't put your garbage bag on the riverside of the road anymore. But it wasn't until we cleaned it and created that that new story for everyone to embrace that they created to find. So, you know, sometimes you do this one thing and then it creates a great cascade of ripple effect. There's another project that you're also involved with, the uh, Plastic Disclosure Project. Right. So this is uh, the PDP. This is like the uh, plastic footprinting methodology I mentioned at the very beginning, but much like carbon reporting. So a company or a municipality or an institution like a hospital, a stadium, a school, university, can look at themselves in the mirror figuratively and understand how much they use, how much they recycle, but they have to follow the chain to really know where their recycling goes and how it gets processed, how much recycled content they use. Then you start really thinking about, how. okay, how much can I avoid? How much more uh, recycled content could I put in? So the goal is to use less virgin material and start using more recycled content or alleviate the low-hanging fruit. Obviously, this stupid, silly, single-use things that you don't need to package on every single item that you're selling. You can can bulk package 10 of them into one thing. So you you just save 10 times, you know, things like that. And uh, it gives you a baseline number for your year of operation in that location at that site for that product line, you know, whatever it is you're measuring, but it's a great tool to then start thinking about how can I innovate next year, next year, next year, next year for this product or for my company. And it's a great way to get employees, you know, motivated and thinking about innovation as well. Yeah. Cause I feel like once you've got those numbers, it's kind of easier to realize, okay, this is our number where we're now, we're measuring it. So how do we go to improve? Because now you've got numbers against everything. And I mean, there's so many great tools out there as well um, that consumers can actually have a look at as well to also get a better idea of how much stuff is actually in your stuff. Like if you just look at Source Map, for example, like Google a laptop and like Dell is using a lot of recycled materials now and their laptops or their newer laptops So you can actually look at that and see, oh my goodness, you know, my laptop is, to get that one laptop, it is including a hundred countries because, you know, this goes there, this material comes from here. And it gives you this sense of like ownership and responsibility as well, because there's so much that goes in. It's not just a laptop. There's a lot that goes in. And I want all of our crazy birds to realize that, you know, everything is coming from somewhere. And, you know, with with great tools like what you guys are using, it just makes it easier for for us and also for businesses to, you know, be more accountable and, you know, take ownership of stuff as well. Right. So crazy birds. You know, one thing that teachers could do with with kids is a nice little competition or uh, a, uh, a challenge is you you have the kids carry their plastic in a in a nice bag, like a diving bag or something lightweight. They can rinse it off, but they carry it with them every single day for one week or for five days. They have to carry it everywhere they go. So every time they throw something away, 
goes in this bag. Gets a little bigger every day. And then you can do all kinds of things with sorting, mathematics, colors, sizes, types. It's a really interesting way to have, have the, you know, the youth hone in on that and understand what they use that week. Exactly. That visualization. And I mean, our crazy birds are well aware. I actually wore all of my trash for like 30 days. So like 30 days wearing every single thing that I made as the general, like a general, like global citizen. And it is crazy. Like just thinking about that times 12, that's like one year's waste. And it was like so much. And So we can definitely, I think it's so good for everyone to do that. Like five days a week. Like I would, I would actually challenge our crazy birds to go and do this, like, you know, this week and link us up in social media and like say, Hey, this is my waste for the week. No one's going to judge you. We are definitely going to try and help you to see, you know, can we reduce? Where does it go? Can we check with manufacturers? You know, can they make stuff better or yeah. So I think that's a great challenge for us all. And at schools, obviously it's great as well. Doug, you also have been involved in some other projects as well. I think one of it was that skyscraper, obviously the whale. You can probably see my whale here, my straw whale that's made from single-use plastic straws. (laughs) So yeah, tell us a little bit more about that and if there's any other projects that you want us to mention still. I like doing uh, big visual things, a bit like art. You know, I don't necessarily make it myself, but We've done uh, something called Kids Ocean Day here in Hong Kong, which has come out of, of Los Angeles. But you get uh, we do talks at the schools for a week ahead of time and then have a drawing competition of an ocean animal. And we get 1,000 kids. And in L.A., they get three or 4,000 kids. And you make a giant aerial art image of that animal that, that they drew. And, you know, now with drones, that's, and before it was with a helicopter, you get this big aerial of this animal that 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 the world you know that the kids want to protect and that has great power because it, it engages a lot of people they don't exactly know what they're doing we like to use the word creative surprise so you uh you get them engaged they're not quite sure where it's going to end up but then they get very excited they, they the companies who support it get great pr kids love it and they learn a lot but the skyscraper, the whale, you mentioned that. It was a 12-meter-tall whale made from an architect in, in New York, and it was commissioned by the city of Bruges in Belgium. And after it was done in Europe, right before COVID, I said, where's the whale going next? And they said, well, I don't know. We don't have a place for it. I said, well, I can bring it on a tour of Asia. So we, we put it up in front of the Sands Casino in Singapore. It was there for three months. Everyone who went by it took a picture and it just got them thinking. It was all made from trash from the gyre in the, in the North Pacific, uh, found on Hawaii, on that one island of Hawaii where it washes up. And we were going to take them on a tour. Would have gone to Sydney, would have gone to the Olympics in Tokyo and China and Shanghai. But COVID came and unfortunately that tour and exhibit didn't go along with it. But when you have those kind of things, it's a great way to start a discussion. People ask why, where did it come from? What, why is it like that? How do we solve it? Then you can have workshops. There's all kind of things that you know come around that. So we have some great projects in Cambodia, water falling and water rising festivals in villages where the water recedes and rises six meters every year. And that's turned into a really neat um, program. The government now fully supports it. We didn't have that at the beginning. And it's not, uh, you know, we call it a festival. We don't call it a cleanup. And sometimes just the change in wording is very important to maybe not make certain stakeholders unhappy. If you call something a cleanup, it's very dirty, your place looks bad, they're afraid the tourists won't come, and it's giving bad uh, bad PR for that location. But if you if you start celebrating the water and you're celebrating the life on the lake and the fact that you can reduce plastic in these ways and not burn it, you know, that education then becomes very powerful for helping the livelihood of that community, but in a po- really positive way. And that's what we've been doing. And now we're, we have a new program called Hervis Plastic, where each household takes all of their plastic, a bit like we were just talking about with the kids, but they segregate it from all the other waste. So you don't get contamination 
from the food waste, then that means there's more chances down the road to be able to recycle it or you know repurpose it somehow. Oh, that's amazing. That all sounds so great. And I definitely encourage all our crazy birds to actually go online and check out more of your stuff. I mean, you guys have really like such great, like that uh, impossible puzzles and there's so many like cool stuff that is there for them. Um, We can probably like talk another hour on all the amazing stuff that you guys are doing. Yeah. So that's Ocean Recovery Alliance, oceanrecover.org. All hands on deck. Uh, when you walk around the street next day, pick something up. It's amazing to see people's reactions when they don't expect you to pick something up. And especially when, when kids do that, then the adults are thinking, what, what's that kid doing that I'm not doing myself? And it's a very interesting way to, to change dynamics on, on the whole litter issue. You know, maybe it's important. People are going to hear about this in the next year or two. There's a UN plastic treaty being negotiated. About more than 190 countries have agreed that there should be a treaty. I don't know how it's going to be created and what it will do yet, but uh, the next every six months, the next one is in May, we'll be meeting of all the you know nations and and the stakeholders and geos to talk about how do we stop plastic pollution you know, around the world. Do we have taxes? Do we have bans? Do we have EPR programs, extended producer responsibility? Do we have more recycling? Do we have more funding? All of these things. We think that it's very, very important, going back to the circular economy, to have a global circular economy for plastic. Many times people just say the word circular economy. They don't really think. Does that mean in my state only, in my county only, in my village? Or does that mean cross-border and across all these different countries? And for plastic, it really needs to be global because it's very unlikely that most countries will all have enough technology and resources to handle and manage and process their own material. And if they're not allowed to move it, in the right way, where it's legitimate uh, feedstock for recycling, where it's qualified, it's certified. These last few years, that that trade has really come to a halt because there have been some bad press and there was illicit trade of waste. And of course, we don't want that. But that's really been, those loopholes have been closed a lot lately. So anyway, that's going to be an interesting thing to see where this goes in two years of trying to finish it by 2024. That sounds great. We'll definitely be keeping an eye out of that. And how can our crazy birds actually help you guys out? Well, you know, we're not a big group, but we try to work in different countries where we have good collaborating partners that we trust and we that we see the same eye to eye. And a lot of the programs that I've talked about are all replicable anywhere. You know, the Plastic Disclosure Project and our Global Alert app could be used by everyone tomorrow without the need for any bans, taxes, or legislative changes. It's no time wasted. We have a play that is called Uncle Roo, the Recycling Rooster. It's for kids and about to use as a rooster uh, because all villages have a rooster, almost. And we call this eco-repetition is the sound of the rooster because it happens every single day. And in our play, the rooster is the hero and he crows, he's cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. He says, you have to recycle. And he teaches the village how to recycle, sort their waste, not burn it, not get the animals sick. But when the kids wake up the next day, the next month, they hear the rooster, they're reminded to recycle. And we have this in eight languages now. Anyone out there who's got a theater or a group of kids or some group who can perform it, Get in touch because uh, this is a pretty neat way to expand the messaging through through arts and theater and you know. Oh, that's amazing! So important. <laughs> but we always, you know, need funding and support. You know, that's tough because we're in Asia and it's not a main um, habit for people to give as much to environmental causes as as they do for health and elderly and children and that becomes a challenge. So, you know, it's all, it's all hands on deck and any support we can get from different things um, helps us do more and, and work with others. 
Awesome. And Doug, what has been one of your most important decisions that you've actually made around Mama Earth? Well, I think doing what I'm doing, you know, we have had a lot of impact. We've got a huge amount of press on different things. And some of our programs, I would say, haven't kicked in yet. Like I said, the Plastic Disclosure Project, we were sort of 10 years too early and it, it hasn't really taken off. Um, but when it does, it will be a major impact. Using that, I talked to one of the biggest bottlers in in Asia a number of years ago, and I, I got them in one meeting, changed their bottles from 0% recycled content to 100% recycled content in one change. That usually doesn't happen that way. And that saved 75 million bottles just because they researched it, understood how to do it, and said, oh, we, we can do this. And so if we can get plant those seeds and get those kind of changes happening, then there's there's a big impact from from one one entity, one business, one company, maybe one government. So yeah, I think I I never try to calculate all the great things we've done, but um, when I see village chiefs or monks or children and you just see all these different things happening at different times. You realize that uh, there's some good things being done and uh, hard to quantify, but you know, talking to people like you is great because it helps spread the word a bit. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. And we are now going to move into our final five. First one is what is one social media account or publication that you follow? I look at the green bids. It's a, it's an online uh, sustainability site. And I'm mostly out of the U.S., but it's very good for, for business and, and sustainability issues. Awesome. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? Well, I think we're about to enter an um, environmental revolution. Big companies often haven't stuck their toe in this space in a big way yet. But I think with... The opportunities for job creation and innovation and changes across all types of products and services is going to be enormous. And we're only just starting. So uh, I want to help you know push that snowball over the hill so it can start building faster. But I think this is going to be, you know, we all have a lot of problems in this space, but the, I think there's a lot of opportunities that uh, are going to come as well. And what advice can you give our crazy birds this week to actually help out Mama Earth? Well, like I said, uh, just be proud. Pick it up. Just be proud. Pick it up. Just be proud. When you walk down the street, pick something up. You know, your fingers won't get so dirty and people will take note and uh, that can create a change. So pretty simple. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people not yet? on a sustainable journey? Well, since I talk about plastic and recycling, I give a quick analogy that the complexity of recycling is like trying to reconstitute an omelet. So if you make, if I make an omelet with eggs, mushroom, cheese, milk, and peppers, and I give it to you and you say, Doug, thank you so much, but I want you to put all those pieces back into their original form. That's pretty much how complicated recycling is today and why it's so tough. When you tell that to an audience, you know, they, they really sort of say, wow, I didn't really think of it that way. You know, how do you sort all those types of plastic and colors and keep them clean and not contaminated with food waste? So one tip I would say that the world could really benefit from is sorting trash simply by wet and dry. Because everyone's confused with colored bins and what goes where and there's contamination. Wet means organic and, you know, all your food waste. Dry means everything else. But when you do that, you can get value out of both sides. Uh, when you put them together, you get very little value from either. So, uh, yeah, that's a great, hopefully, idea people can help with. Yeah, and where can people find you? So we're at oceanrecub.org is our website. We also have a separate website for plasticdisclosure.org. That's the uh, PDP, the plastic footprinting. And we also have globalalert.org, which is our app. Uh, and it's on the app store. But most other everything else is under the 
the banner of Ocean Recovery Alliance. So have a look and uh, maybe we'll get to talk to some of your listeners in the future. And we will link all of that up in our show notes. So if you're listening to this on the go, go to the show notes and you'll find all the links there of today's episode as well. Thank you so much for being such an amazing guest, Doug. And we are definitely going to keep on following and seeing what you guys are doing. And especially with that new treaty coming up as well. We'll yes. keep, a, keep an E and I out. <laughs> Right. Well, I look forward to seeing and and sharing this podcast once you get it put up. So thanks a lot for having us. And that's a wrap. Huge thank you for our amazing guests for being on the podcast and for sharing their journey with us. You can find the show notes of this episode on the MamaEarthTalk.com's website. The biggest thank you goes out to all of you crazy birds for listening to the podcast If you have not already listened to all of the episodes, you can go back to a few of them. You will absolutely love them. I really enjoyed recording every single one of them. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to them. There's over a hundred episodes. So if you feel a little bit lost on which one to listen to next, maybe select one of the episodes with guests that you might want to know more of and start from there. If you enjoy the episodes, why not tell a friend about the podcast and maybe share an episode with them? Let them know that we are here and we are waiting for them with open arms and they are all very welcome to join the crazy birds globally. If you have a question for me, please send them over. The best way to get in contact with me would probably be a DM on Instagram. You can either send it to my personal, which is at Zero Waste Mariska, or the podcast, which is at Mama Earth Talk, or send me an email at hello at mamaearthtalk.com. If there's a particular guest or topic that you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know. I love to hear from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every second Monday. So make sure to subscribe that you do not miss a thing. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.